0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 143, Man Up, Gender in the Middle Ages. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at Podcast.com. And thank you very much to Andrew, Caitlin, and Joshua for contributing already. You know, oftentimes, the way the Middle Ages are presented are as an era where everyone was lily white, and a time where men were men and women were women. You know, a time of hyper-masculinity, where all the guys were muscle-bound warriors with big bushy beards and a bone structure that makes them look like extras from Clan of the Cave Bear. But just like everything else that pop culture has taught us about the Middle Ages, including the commonly used moniker, the Dark Ages. It was more complex than that. King Oswiu didn't have access to a special masculinity gene that's been lost to time. There were cultural pressures at play that led to some of the themes, but not everyone fit the mold. People are people, and our antiquated view of England is exactly that. Antiquated. So it really should be corrected, and we're going to start doing that with this episode. Now before we get going, I'd like to point a few things out. First, we're going to be drawing from many centuries and stitching them together as best as we can. The reason for that is because the available data on a niche area such as this tends to be scattered across time and space, at least until we got better at recording things. So please forgive me for rapidly jumping through time like a malfunctioning TARDIS. Second, everything I'm going to be saying here has been researched and is either a direct quote or a paraphrasing of scholars that specialize on social life in this era. In other episodes, sometimes I'll muse out loud on what I think is going on. And I try and be very clear when I do that, but I won't be doing that in this episode. Because this is an area of study that can be rather personal for people, I want you to be assured that everything is sourced and comes from scholarly articles. I take the trust you place in me quite seriously. Finally, I'll be speaking about wide swaths of land and culture. As we've learned, there isn't anything truly uniform in this era. And so not all of this will apply to all the people of Britain or Europe. For example, as members already know, Mercia was much more accepting of female leadership than other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of the Heptarchy. So there isn't a broad English culture at this point. And I think you could argue that there still isn't one. And even when we talk about the population of a specific area, there will always be exceptions. But simply because some members of an oppressed group do well doesn't mean that the oppression felt by the group as a whole isn't real. So what we're talking about are the broad general sentiments that were occurring, rather than what Unferth himself specifically thought. It might not have been all Anglo-Saxons, but the fact that there was a cultural push means that we should talk about it. All right, so I've already indicated that the impression of the Middle Ages isn't entirely correct. So to start with, Where did it come from? Well, it looks like it came from the Victorians. As we go forward in the show, you'll find that a lot of our strange notions of the past tend to come from the Victorians. But of course it would. They were rather enthusiastic about history and archaeology, so they really did set the tone for a lot of scholarship that followed them. Unfortunately, they hadn't yet incorporated objectivity into their practices. So it's staggering how many biases they brought into their studies. In fact, part of our long-standing historical obsession with Rome comes from how much the Victorians identified themselves with ancient Rome. But for our current discussion, the Victorians have influenced our view of the past through their own views of masculinity and gender roles when they were looking at the written records and archaeological digs. And here's how. Naturally, in the 18th century, we lacked the ability to look at archaeological remains and determine on a genetic level what the sex of the deceased was. We just didn't have the technological ability to do that yet. So archaeologists did the best that they could, and they looked at osteological factors, basically what the bones look like, and they also looked at what was buried with the body, and then they interpreted the findings. Now, looking at bones is actually rather difficult. And that's because humans aren't all that sexually dimorphic. And what that means is that the difference between men and women isn't all that significant when compared with other primates. On average, modern men and women only differ in weight by about 20%. And the overlap between the sexes is enormous. And those differences have varied significantly through time. They aren't static. And actually, there was very little differences between the sexes in prehistoric times. So much of those differences in body weight could be linked to lifestyle and diet rather than just raw genetics, which makes interpreting bones on just size comparisons rather problematic. And there's another complicating factor when looking at these graves. What you're looking for are secondary sex characteristics. Differences between men and women, like the shape of the pelvis and of the skull. But these were differences that came about due to puberty, So prepubescent bodies are definitely an issue for determining sex by osteology. So yeah, just looking at bones is pretty tough. And don't forget, this was before we could look at their genetics. Consequently, the antiquarians were looking for a bit of help on the matter. And that's where grave goods came into it. Surely what was buried with a body could help determine what the deceased's sex was, right? Well, not necessarily. The thing is that the lives of the upper-class Victorians, who were generally the ones doing this research, were strictly segregated by sex. There were activities that were reserved for men and activities reserved for women. So when these Victorian antiquarians were looking at the remains, they assumed that there was a close connection between sex and gender. And so when they saw spears, they determined that the body was male. When they saw sewing implements, they determined that the body was female. That's what they associated with men and women, so surely that must be how men and women lived in the past as well. And they applied this reasoning to the bodies they were examining, regardless of what their bones looked like. If the body was broad-shouldered, with narrow hips, and all the secondary sex characteristics that say middle-aged man, but he was buried with a sewing box, well, obviously, this must have been a woman. Conversely, if they saw a body with female sex characteristics like wider hips and differences in the shape of the skull, but the body was buried with a spear and shield, well, that must have been a man. Consequently, we have this view that gender roles were set in stone from the 5th century to the 19th century. We also had this odd thing where it looked like men were seriously overrepresented in the Middle Ages, presumably rather lonely, frustrated men. And this way of thinking led one Victorian scholar, Professor Buckland from Oxford University, to determine that the Red Lady of Paviland was a female Roman prostitute. He believed that because the grave goods contained a great deal of jewelry. So this was obviously a girl. And the presence of red on the bones and the surrounding area was an indication that she was a prostitute in Roman times. Well, the Red Lady of Paviland was actually male, not female. And he was from Britain, not Rome. Actually, he was from prehistoric Britain from about 33,000 years ago. And while there was no evidence that he was a prostitute, we can't conclusively say that he wasn't. So Professor Buckland was definitely wrong on two of his three findings. And while he was probably wrong on his third, the jury is still out. So maybe he's going to be 33% right. But that's still a failing grade. So, these assumptions that the Victorians were making about the sex of the bodies via grave goods weren't all that reliable. And now that we've gotten much better with archaeology, we're finding that life was much more complex than the simple, self-affirming narrative that the Victorians gave us. And while the Victorians interpreted Anglo-Saxon history as having only two genders, masculine and feminine, was that really the case? After all, there are cultures all throughout history that have had more than two genders. You know, some of you might not be too familiar with the difference between sex and gender. A simple way to think about it is sex is the bits that you're born with, and gender is how society relates to those bits. And because gender is linked to culture, it's fluid. For example, for the longest time, heels were the height of masculinity. But now in Western culture, they're rather feminine. So our concepts of gender can change. Anyway, so there have been plenty of cultures in history that have had more than two genders. For example, we've seen them in North America, South America, Europe, Central Asia, Indonesia, Korea, and China. So looking at the Middle Ages, are we really talking about a period where men were men and women were women? And even if we are, what does that mean? Well, here's the counterintuitive part of studying something like this. When you want to study how gender, or really any other social category, is viewed and defined, you don't look at it directly. Looking at Beowulf and what Bede had to say about Edwin won't be all that helpful in determining how gender was viewed. And that makes sense if you think about it. Social rules tend to be assumed, and so they aren't heavily discussed. Unless we're writing a book on etiquette, many of the social rules that govern our day-to-day life tend to be left unstated especially in written works. So if we're talking about unspoken rules, how do we find them? Well, to fully see how rules are defined, viewed, and dealt with, we typically need to look at individuals who transgress those boundaries. We learn much more about the definitions by looking at the people who don't conform and how society reacts to that. So to start our discussion on gender and sex, we're going to talk about transvestism the desire to dress in the clothes, and even assume the role of the opposite sex. It's also known as cross-dressing. And while the word transvestite often has sexual connotations, which was a view that went back at least to the Middle Ages, and we'll get to that later in this episode, cross-dressing is pretty much the literal meaning of the word transvestite. Trans, meaning cross, and vestism, or vestite. You know, vestments. Clothing. Clothing cross-clothing. Now, I'm not going to get into issues of why this occurs, because honestly, I'm thoroughly unqualified to talk about that. And really, a discussion like that has no place in a history podcast. It's much better suited to a sexuality or psychology podcast. But I do want to talk about how transvestites interacted with the world in the Middle Ages, and how they were treated, and the cultural connotations raised in how society reacted to the presence of cross-dressing. So that's what we're going to be focusing on. Now, chances are, when I said cross-dressing, you probably thought of a male transvestite. And actually, most scholarly discussions of transvestites do focus upon males wearing women's clothing. In fact, there's a stunning lack of scholarly attention to women wearing a man's clothing in psychopathology. Almost all the articles focus upon men, which seems to imply that either there aren't women who dress in men's clothing, or that it's only something that psychopathologists should discuss when it involves men. Strange, right? Well, that tendency to focus upon men wearing women's clothing goes all the way back to the Anglo-Saxon era, and even a little bit earlier. And talking about how people in the Middle Ages viewed genders and anyone who transgressed gender boundaries will likely give you a better understanding of some of the events to come. Because history is replete with individuals who were not satisfied with the roles that were assigned to them, and the Middle Ages were no exception. Now, considering that Britain was becoming devoutly Christian, you would expect a certain hostility towards cross-dressing. After all, Deuteronomy 22.5 was rather clear on the matter, stating that, quote, "...women shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God." All right, well, that makes it pretty clear that Yahweh hates pantsuits and guyliner. liner. Got it. So middle age authorities must have hated transvestites of both sexes, right? Wrong. What we see when we look at the evidence of cross-dressing is that female crossdressers were tolerated and even encouraged. But Western society was in general rather troubled by the presence of male transvestites. So why that difference? Many times the Bible is pointed to as the cause for the treatment of cross-dressing. But Deuteronomy was pretty clear that it went against both sexes. In fact, women came first. So if it was biblical, you would think that there would be a clear societal condemnation of both sexes. But there wasn't. So what's going on there? Well, Bulla argues that Western attitudes towards transvestites, and probably transsexuals as well, were influenced by the fact that status was tied to the role of the sexes and how women were viewed. Despite the Judeo-Christian view that men and women were both a special creation of God, and therefore both significant, people in the Middle Ages generally believed that women were inferior to men. And typically, Greek philosophy carries the blame for this view becoming prominent. Though Christianity did incorporate this belief early on by turning to thinkers such as Philo, who taught his followers that men were superior to women because men represented the rational parts of the soul. And this view was endemic through most scholarly thought of the time and stretched even into the high medieval period, with St. Thomas Aquinas stating, quote, "...good order would have been wanting in the human family if some were not governed by others wiser than themselves." So by such a kind of subjection, woman is naturally subject to man, because in men the discretion of reason predominates, end quote. People have used the same sort of logic to defend slavery of certain races. And it wasn't just Aquinas. Philo went one step farther, saying that women should give up their gender and take on male rationality. And this wasn't a mere request of, hey, why don't you just try and be more rational? He believed the only way for women to become like men was to deny their sexuality and remain virgins. Interestingly, he didn't feel that only virginal men could be rational, by the way. So the inference there is that there was something about women, and especially women who had sex, that made them irrational, or at least lesser. So how would this way of thinking impact how transvestites were viewed? Well, let's look at a few examples. And because of the nature of written records at the time, our best examples are religious figures. And as soon as I said cross-dressing religious figures, I'm betting that some of you immediately thought of Pope Joan. And for those of you who aren't sure who I'm talking about, Pope Joan is said to have been a medieval pope who reigned as Pope John Anglicus. Her story largely comes from several chroniclers in the 13th century who wrote about her life in great detail. Now, Pope Joan was treated as fact for much of the late medieval period. It was believed so deeply that a 14th century cathedral erected a statue in her honor. And in the 15th century, she was even used as an example of how the Catholic Church had fallen to degeneracy. Modern scholarship pretty much uniformly asserts that Pope Joan was nothing but a legend. And the story of her life is so complex and strange that most experts have a hard time imagining how people in the Middle Ages believed her story. But they did believe her story, and it wasn't until the 16th century that people began to doubt it. And that's the part I want to focus on, that despite the strangeness of the story, because it really is an odd story, it was accepted as fact for a good portion of the medieval period. And that very well might have been due to the fact that female saints had been wearing male clothing and taking on male identities within the church for centuries. A good example of a saint who was also a female transvestite is Pelagia. Like with many saints, there are differing versions of her life. But the standard version says that Pelagia was a gorgeous dancer and a prostitute who lived in Antioch. And she took on a patron, Bishop Nonus, who converted her to Christianity. Upon her conversion, she left Antioch and her entire former identity behind. And with Bishop Nottos' permission, she began to dress as a man and wore a hair shirt under her clothing. She ended up retiring to Mount Olivet, where she lived the rest of her life as a man, changing her name to Pelagius. Not the same Pelagius as the one who lived in Britain, by the way. But she was living as a man named Pelagius. So, here we have a complete change in identity, To the point where we have a woman living a life as a man and even after her death when it was discovered that she was actually a woman the revelation was treated by the people as a wonder of god so overall that's a pretty positive reception right she had a bishop's permission she was allowed to take on not just male clothing but also a male identity and when it was discovered that she was a woman and not a man it was seen as a rather holy event And there is philosophical support for this view within the church, even from its early days. For example, St. Jerome wrote that, quote, long as woman is for birth and children, she is different from man as body is from soul. But when she wishes to serve Christ more than the world, she will cease to be a woman and will be called a man, That was written in the fourth century, and I think it should raise at least a few eyebrows. But that view wasn't uncommon in the 4th century. For example, St. Ambrose wrote, quote, She who does not believe is a woman, and should be designated by the name of her sex. Whereas she who believes progresses to perfect manhood, to the measure of the adulthood of Christ. She then dispenses with the name of her sex, the seductiveness of youth, the garrulousness of old age. End quote. There are actually a surprising number of statements from the Middle Ages that seem to indicate that the church should encourage women to start looking like men in order to live more perfect spiritual lives. And we do see quite a few female transvestite saints referenced in the Middle Ages. Hell, Saint Perpetua went as far as dreaming that she had been completely transformed into a man, which was also seen as a rather holy event. So transitioning from a woman to a man, even in just a dream, fit within this way of thinking. And we also have some female saints who were noted for growing beards. So overall, it does seem like there is a view that taking on the characteristics of a man was a doorway into a higher spiritual existence. However, it's not clear whether or not this was an organized plan by the church, Or just something that developed organically from unequal gender roles and resulted in an utter disregard of Deuteronomy and an elevation of cross-dressing as a holy undertaking. But whatever the case, the point I want to make is that cross-dressing is something that was happening. And while it might not have been the norm, after all, we don't read of large groups of peasant women crossing the gender lines and living lives as men, through the stories that were recorded... It seems that the desire to be male was rather accepted and it was actually considered normal that women, for spiritual reasons, might want to be a man. And that setting aside their feminine characteristics and adopting masculinity was somewhat accepted and even encouraged. Well, for the most part. There is a rather famous saint who wore male clothing and rather than being revered, she was punished brutally for it. Joan of Arc. And she does seem like a counterexample to what we've been talking about here, doesn't she? I mean, here we have a female saint who wore the clothing and armor of a man. Given what our 4th century male saints had told us, not to mention the lives of other female saints that we've discussed, that should be godly, shouldn't it? And yet, she was specifically tried and executed for, among other things, cross-dressing. One of the original complaints against her stated that she wore, quote, a male costume made for her, with arms to match. When these garments and these arms were made, fitted and completed, the said Jean put off and entirely abandoned women's clothes. With her hair cropped short and round like a young fops, she wore shirt, breeches, doublet, and hose joined together and fastened to the said doublet by twenty points. Long leggings laced on the outside, a short mantle reaching the knees or thereabouts, a close-cut cap, tight-fitting boots and buskins, long spurs, sword, dagger, breastplate, lance, and other arms in the style of a man-at-arms, with which she performed actions of war. And affirm that she was fulfilling the commandments of God as they have been revealed to her. End quote. You might have noticed that most of that had to do with her wearing male clothing, armor, and bearing weapons. And actually, two of the six admonitions and two of the twelve articles leveled against her involved the fact that she was a transvestite. So what's the deal? Well, obviously, she threatened English interests, so that was a problem, and it didn't make her very popular. But what else made her so different? Why was her cross-dressing such an issue, given the existence of female cross-dressing saints and the writing of other saints that supported women living as men? Well, there's a couple things that have been pointed out. First, she never tried to pretend to be a man. She was always a woman in male clothing. In many of the other examples, the saints weren't simply wearing male clothing. They were taking on a male persona entirely. And the medieval writers speaking in favor of this does indicate that the goal was to become male in spirit. Which was probably why we have other examples of female saints living as monks in monasteries and being praised for it. But Joan didn't abandon being a woman. Joan was always Joan. She was never John. And beyond that, she was active in battle, which was seen as the male arena. Not only was she active, but she was pretty damn effective, and openly a woman while she was doing it. And there we might see the key difference between her story and others. For a woman to try and become a man entirely might be viewed as holy, but for a woman to persist in being a woman while also competing with men in strictly masculine activities like battle, well, that could not be accepted. After all, to allow a woman to succeed at a strictly male task would be seen as a loss of status for men. And not just the men who were defeated by her, but all men. Somehow, it would have essentially meant that battle, this thing that the nobility had dedicated their lives to, was no longer manly and was rather girly. So England's need for her to be eliminated for political reasons dovetailed quite nicely with the fear and revulsion that the upper classes felt regarding a woman openly rejecting her gender role and competing with men. And so, they killed her. But the tale of Joan of Arc brings us to the second part of this discussion. After all, there are also men out there. And women were not the only people who sometimes wanted to reject their gender role. So it looks like taking the guise and full identity of a man while abstaining from sex can result in an increase in spiritual value. But maintaining a female identity while wearing male clothing or competing in activities that are regarded as masculine was regarded as sinful. So it looks like the issue is, at least in part, the way the woman's activities impact the status of masculinity. Does she increase it through accepting its superiority by adopting an entirely new identity and fully rejecting the traits of her sex, even sexual intercourse? Or does she decrease the status of men by maintaining her identity as a woman and simply competing in male-dominated areas of life? So that dichotomy and focus on masculinity raises a question. What happens when a man wears a woman's clothing? Or takes on a female identity? Well, to begin with, there is a great deal of hand-wringing regarding male transvestites. And one of the major things on the minds of medieval writers was the belief that such men would only do that in order to gain sexual access to women. Now, while many goths will tell you that a little guy-liner can go a long way, what was going on here was much more complex. There's an excellent quote on this that I wanna read for you verbatim. Quote, transvestism, which is usually defined in terms of psychopathology, must also be examined in terms of status gain and loss. This appears most obvious in an examination of the lives of the transvestite saints whose legends and myths help set Western attitudes towards transvestism all these saints were female, and by implication, females could only gain by donning the clothes of the male. Males, on the other hand, lost status if they wore items of female apparel, and the only way society could justify such a loss was through attaching erotic connotations to such conduct, which made it both dangerous and sinful." There's a deep assumption in the sinful nature of male crossdressers, topped with a large dollop of fear over unrestrained female sexuality. But there is a big reason for these medieval writers getting their knickers in a twist over male transvestites, and why they became so obsessed with masculinity that King William Rufus's pointy shoes threw them into fits. It's the same reason why poor Joan of Arc was executed. It's one of my favorite cultural topics. And it seems to underpin everything from diet to language. Status. While female transvestites leaving their sex behind and becoming men was virtuous, male transvestites leaving their sex behind was seen as a loss of status. Not just a loss of status for the male transvestite, but a loss of status for all men. The thought seems to have been that by having a man embrace femininity it bottomed the stock market for all masculinity rendering it worthless as a consequence of this connotation of sin sexuality and loss of status there are no male transvestite saints but we do have written records regarding men dressing as women during this era for example gregory of tours wrote in the sixth century of how an abbess knowingly allowed a man who was pretending to be a woman, to live in a convent and dress as a nun. The argument was that everyone had to have known because he was so obviously a man, and that the abbess certainly knew because he served her directly. So there is a resulting investigation, and it did show that there was a male nun. And the defense was put forward that he came to the convent as a small boy with a disease of the groin that was incurable so they cut off his testicles and dressed him as a girl. Discovering that the man lacked testicles and suffering from a disease of the groin was sufficient for the investigation and the charges to be dropped. The notion is that this was due to the fact that the male nun was not a sexual risk. Though it has also been argued that it might have been due to the fact that as the man was at least partially emasculated, he was not a threat to masculine status. The fact remains, though, that despite living a pious life as a woman in a convent, the male nun never was considered for sainthood, and very nearly found himself in rather terrifying legal trouble. And it's a remarkable reversal of the stories of female saints that we've talked about in this episode, isn't it? And the truth is that compared to female cross-dressing, recorded male transvestites are nearly non-existent in this era. And when it was discussed, it was with strong disapproval. However, we do see instances where it was tolerated. And typically, it's something where there's something that women were prohibited from doing, but society wanted the activity performed with a female appearance. The best example of this are plays. Beginning with morality plays regarding the Passion of the Christ, put on primarily by the clergy, we had plays where there would need to be female characters. And while women weren't always prohibited from those plays... Typically, all the acting roles were filled by various male clergy because it was deemed improper for women to be on stage. Basically, by being on stage, it was like they were exposing themselves. Though, oddly, it was fine for men to expose themselves. But whatever. So in those circumstances, men could wear female clothes. As time went on, plays became less religious and more secular, so traveling actors and vagabonds would fill those roles. But... There were a few women in those groups as well, so men often filled female roles, but it wasn't treated as a serious matter, likely because they were outcasts and already low status. And it wasn't until the 17th century that England really started to accept the notion that women could play the role of women. So this form of violating gender boundaries was quite common, and with the exception of a few blips, it was generally tolerated. And as we alluded to in earlier episodes, the church took an active role in policing gender roles for men. As you know, my favorite example is William Rufus and his entourage, who were criticized as having shoes that were too pointy, for sporting long, luscious locks of hair, and being far too feminine for the clergy to tolerate. And something I want to emphasize is what a serious matter this was for men. I mean, William Rufus ended up dying in rather shady circumstances in the woods. And while there's no indication that this was connected to his pointy shoes, the shrill complaints from the clergy regarding his hair and shoes and effeminate behavior probably did not help his case. And the fact of the matter is that maintaining your status as a man was life or death stuff. As we've already learned, a boy being raised as a girl and living a life as a nun, even if it was not his fault whatsoever, could still result in an untimely death if the wrong people found out. And even if you lived a characteristically masculine life but had something happen that caused you to lose your bits, the social results could be catastrophic. For example, when the French philosopher Abelard was castrated by a gang of men, he wrote of how awful the experience was for him on a social level. Quote, I thought of how my rivals would exult over my fitting punishment, how this bitter blow would bring lasting grief and misery to my friends and parents and how fast the news of this unheard of disgrace would spread over the whole world. What road could I take now? How could I show my face in public to be pointed at by every finger, derided by every tongue, a monstrous spectacle to all I meet? I was appalled to remember that according to the cruel letter of the law, a eunuch is such an abomination to the Lord that men made eunuchs by the amputation or mutilation of their members are forbidden to enter a church as if they were stinking and unclean. And even animals that are in that state are rejected for sacrifice, End quote. Now that's a hell of a quote. Abelard survived a horrific ordeal. And as salt in the wound, he knew that his friends and family would be shamed by him and that not even the church would allow him solace. His status was so closely tied to his masculinity and his status as a man was so closely tied to his sex that when he was forcibly mutilated, it resulted in a dramatic loss of social standing, and even his relationship with the Almighty was in question. I mean, if he couldn't enter a church, and if castration renders sacrifices unclean, what did that say about his chances of entering heaven? So looking at that, it does appear that gender and sex, at least for men, were closely policed and aligned. And for me, the interesting thing out of all of this is how there really isn't a double standard. It might seem like there's a double standard, after all, men and women are being treated quite differently. Men are consistently having to police their masculinity and also protect their bits for fear of social and physical retribution, while women can cast aside their femininity and be met with praise. It does seem like a double standard, but the driving force behind this behavior is remarkably consistent. Men, masculinity, and maleness are seen as a more pure and spiritual form of humanity, and so wanting to be more like a man is in keeping with pious intentions. But women were seen as illogical, emotional, and highly sexual creatures. All traits that are seen at best as lacking virtue, and at worst, deeply sinful. So for a man to want to take on any feminine characteristics would have been an indication of his fall from grace. And also, that he had sinful erotic urges. Now, you do have anomalies within this structure, such as Joan of Arc, but those are easily understood when you see what a threat to the system she posed. For her to succeed would shake the foundation of this assumption of male superiority. But in general, what we're looking at here seems to be the result of elevating masculinity to the point where literally abandoning femininity was seen as virtuous, while expressing any traits associated with females was deeply threatening due to how stigmatized women were in Western medieval culture. So of course you could have women dress as men and take on male identities and then become saints. And of course you would have a trial for a man doing exactly the same thing, but in reverse. The two situations are completely consistent with how they viewed genders. And so when we look at what's going on here, It seems pretty clear here that there were some individuals in the Middle Ages who transgressed their gender boundaries, and that the Anglo-Saxon gender boundaries were not the same as the Victorian gender boundaries. What was manly as manly men could man in the Victorian era might have been rather girly for the Anglo-Saxons, or vice versa, or maybe it was neutral. The past is a foreign country. Their beliefs and rules don't necessarily share anything in common with ours, and the Victorians forgot that. As a consequence, some of the graves that the Victorians categorized as male due to the presence of weapons were actually female. So scholars are taking another look at those burials and also burials with so-called female burial goods, such as sewing boxes, because the assumption that those items were gendered might not always bear out. And even if they were gendered, it doesn't foreclose the possibility of their presence in a male burial. And just like with the assumed male burials, the Victorians sometimes got it wrong with the assumed female burials. And so now they're also being resexed. So, after spending 200 years as a woman because of his love of sewing, Unferth is now once again a man. But the thing to remember about all this stuff regarding masculinity, roles, and botched archaeological findings, is that while there was a cultural push towards masculinity, it doesn't mean that everyone adhered to it just like some right-thinking people haven't adhered to the cultural push of Duck Dynasty. And understanding that is causing a reevaluation of much of the archaeological findings from that era. But when looking at the broad strokes of the medieval era, what we're seeing is a cultural elevation of the masculine identity and the stigmatization of anything that didn't comport with it. When in doubt, add a little more man into the mix. And this behavior was so endemic that even in the Middle Ages, older writers were complaining about how kids weren't manly like they were back in their day. And of course they would complain. If status and masculinity were tied, you automatically gained status by boldly stating that your youth had a more pure form of masculinity, regardless of whether or not it was true. After all, there's no such thing as being too manly. And as for reactions to violating gender roles, the responses we're seeing aren't coming from biblical laws, but rather, they seem to have been driven by an obsession with status. Again, you simply cannot be too manly, even if you're a woman. So I don't think the Victorians had the right of it when they first started telling us stories of the Middle Ages and how men were men and women were women. It was much more complex than that. And the boundaries were certainly being crossed, even by the royalty. But it does seem clear that the medieval cultural police really wanted this to be an era where the men were men, and the women were men, and the kids were men, and the sheep were men. Everyone's a man. Andrew! All right. If you have any questions, concerns, or comments regarding how things were much more manly back in your day, you can reach me at at thebritishhistorypodcast.gmail.com. We also have a bunch of communities. You can join Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, you name it. And there are links to all of those at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening.